Let's pray. Resurrect us to the fullness of life that you came so that we might have. Hold me up, God, that I might lift you up. Amen. Christ is risen. You remember? Yay! Christ is risen. It's still Easter. We are right in the middle of the great 50 days leading up to Pentecost. It is only the third Sunday of Easter. And it's the first Sunday of our new sermon worship series called Life Up, where we continue to ask the question that we began to ask on Easter morning. So what? Christ is risen. And so what? I mean, we know that a risen Savior gives us an amazing amount of confidence in the afterlife, but what about this life? What about right now? Does the resurrection matter in our everyday living? Does the resurrection call us to maybe take life up a notch? My spiritual director has a habit of asking me two very obnoxious questions. The first question is, what do you believe, Tracy? And the second question is, how do you live what you say you believe, Tracy? Where's me out? Really obnoxious questions. And I pay her. I pay her to treat me like that. <laughs> and they are two very good questions. On Easter morning, we make an extremely audacious faith claim. We claim faith in a resurrected Savior. We say that Jesus, after three days in a tomb, after three days in the grave, that he is raised to new life, transformed life. We're not talking about resuscitation. We claim a faith that says that death is not the final word. In fact, based on what we say we believe, we essentially make the claim that life that really matters, that's truly vital, is born in death. It's a whole new quality of life. Somehow, in the resurrection, through Jesus Christ, God takes life up a notch. And this life that really matters, this life that defies death, it calls us to an awareness. It calls us to a greater awakeness, a more intense aliveness to God that when taken seriously, inspires us to not only make audacious faith claims, but to live audaciously. So my spiritual director's voice constantly rings in my head. How do you live what you say you believe, Tracy? And since I get to be a part of a nurturing faith community, I don't have to wrestle with this question all by myself. I can share my suffering with y'all. And so that's our question all together for the next three weeks. How do we live 
what we say we believe on Easter morning. Jesus says, I come so that you might have life and have it to the fullest. Abundant life, some translations say. And I don't know about y'all, but I want that life. I long for that abundant life that Jesus promises us. I want to take life up a notch. And I wonder, what does that look like exactly? What does this transformed living require of me? I do have a disclaimer. Let me just say that I don't know. I do not have all the answers. I have a lot of questions. I have some thoughts. I have some wonderings. I have some limited experience, but I don't have the answers. But I am captured by the question because Jesus promises us abundant life. And I trust Jesus. And I really want that life. So I wonder, I wonder when lived fully into, how is our faith in a resurrected Savior evident in our daily living? How do we live faith in resurrection in all of the spheres of our lives? How do we live that in our work lives? How do we live it in our relationships? How do we live resurrection in terms of our overall approach to life? I don't know about y'all, but sometimes life can get a little bit redundant. It's easy to get focused on the tasks and the routine and the busyness and the challenges of life. It's easy sometimes to allow the struggles of life or the sheer monotony to suck the life right out of living. Sometimes it's easy to wake up and, and look around and wonder, really? Is this it? Mitch Robbins asks himself this question on his 39th birthday. He's a city slicker with a wife and two kids, and he's made a really good life for himself. I mean, by our society's standards, you might say he has abundant life. He has a healthy family, good friends, a nice home. He takes these really amazing vacations on a regular basis. But as 40 looms before him, he begins to fixate on what seems to him like life's very predictable trajectory. And he just can't make any sense of it, in particular as it relates to his work. On the morning of his 39th birthday, he shows up at work and his boss completely dresses him down for a, lar for a lapse in judgment and tells him that going forward, all of his decisions are, gonna be are going to have to be approved by um, his superiors. He gets this news right before he's scheduled to go and speak to his son's class on career day. Mitch is generally pretty pessimistic anyway, so with the blow that his boss has just struck to his ego and the realization that he's getting older, he then discovers that his son is embarrassed by what it is that he does for a living. He sells advertising for a radio station boring. And he realizes this as his son introduces him to the class as a submarine commander. <laughs> and to add insult to injury, he has to follow this very colorful gentleman who has just completely and thoroughly entertained his son's class. Needless to say, all of this 
sets him up for huge disaster. His son and his son's friends are not impressed with him at all. And as he realizes this, his presentation quickly devolves into a very depressed diatribe on aging and on life's apparent meaninglessness. Watch this. Mr. Robbins? What? Value this time in your life, kids. Because this is the time in your life when you still have your choices. And it goes by so fast. When you're a teenager, you think you can do anything, and you do. Your 20s are a blur. 30s, you raise your family, you make a little money, and you think to yourself, what happened to my 20s? 40s, you grow a little pot belly, you grow another chin. The music starts to get too loud. One of your old girlfriends from high school becomes a grandmother. 50s, you have a minor surgery. You'll call it a procedure, but it's a surgery. 60s, you'll have a major surgery. The music is still loud, but it doesn't matter because you can't hear it anyway. The 70s, you and the wife retire to Fort Lauderdale. Start eating dinner at 2 o'clock in the afternoon. You have lunch around 10, breakfast the night before. Spend most of your time wandering around malls looking for the ultimate soft yogurt and muttering, how come the kids don't call? How come the kids don't call? The 80s, you'll have a major stroke. You end up babbling to some Jamaican nurse who your wife can't stand, but who you call mama. Any questions? <laughs> Any questions? <laughs> Probably not. I think most of us at some point in time, maybe not the teenagers over here, but many of us have been here at some point in our lives I mean, we have those times in life when we look ahead and it seems like all we can see is this empty, endless rut that does nothing but get deeper and deeper until it can contain our coffin. Later that evening, when Mitch, when Mitch recounts his day to his wife, he admits to her, he confesses that he feels trapped. He feels trapped by the choices that he's made. He feels trapped by his job. Did you ever wake up and think, he says... This is the best I'm ever going to look. This is the best I'm ever going to feel. This is the best I'm ever going to do. And it's not that great. I feel lost, he says. Tessa Bielecki is a Carmelite monk. I did not realize there were female monks until just a few years ago when I found out about Tessa. But she founded the Spiritual Life Institute 40-plus years ago and has spent her life studying Christian saints and mystics and gleaning from them in their lives a practice of spirituality that claims this abundant life that Christ offers. She believes in what she refers to as an ordered life that is centered around or grounded in prayer. Despite her commitment to ordered living, she says, we can begin to rot from a good way of life that has become reduced to a dehumanizing routine. It's possible to live a life with absolutely no life in it. This cannot be what Jesus meant, can it? When he said he came that we might have abundant life. 
Let's listen to what Jesus has to say to his dear friend Martha, who feels completely put out by her work on this particular day. Hear now the gospel of Jesus Christ according to Luke. While Jesus and his disciples were traveling, Jesus entered a village where a woman named Martha welcomed him as a guest. She had a sister named Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his message. By contrast, Martha was preoccupied with getting everything ready for their meal. So Martha came to him and said, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to prepare the table all by myself? Tell her to help me. The Lord answered, Martha, Martha, you're worried and distracted by many things. One thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the better part. It won't be taken away from her. This is the word of God. One thing is necessary. One thing. Martha is not a happy camper not right now. She's extremely unhappy. She's doing what she does, what's generally expected, and what I imagine on a good day she may even enjoy. She's doing a very good thing, honoring her guests with a display of extravagant hospitality, all born of her love for her guest, born of her love for Jesus. And then somewhere in there, her work becomes disconnected from her purpose, maybe. She becomes distracted by Mary, who's sitting at Jesus' feet. And then she begins to feel unnecessarily overburdened because, I mean, there's someone sitting right there who could help. But Mary has made herself completely useless in Martha's estimation. Martha cannot believe she's just sitting there acting like a disciple. What does she think she is, a man? Meanwhile, surely she sees Martha running herself ragged. Doesn't she know that she needs some help? I mean, she'd have to be blind and deaf not to see that. And don't you know that Martha has dropped every conceivable hint I mean, I can imagine her slamming cabinets, slamming drawers, rattling the silverware, glaring daggers at Mary every single time she stomps in and out of the kitchen to set the table while she expels these completely frustrated sighs. It's probably hard to imagine. Um, <laughs> I know that none of us has ever done that, but I have certainly seen people who do that. She drops hints and stews for as long as she can possibly stand it until she just explodes. Jesus, do you see what's going on here? Would you please tell Mary to get up off of her useless little fanny and help me out? I bet that was a sweet moment. I can imagine that Martha was absolutely convinced that Jesus would see it her way. Can you imagine the shock and embarrassment as the realization dawns that Jesus is reprimanding her and not Mary? You're worried and distracted by so many things, Martha. Only one thing is necessary. And Mary has it figured out? Huh. Mitch learned about the one thing from Curly. 
a rather mysterious and surly trail boss who he meets on a two-week cattle drive in New Mexico. It's a birthday present from his two best friends. Well, Mitch is absolutely terrified of Curly, and rightly so. I mean, the man is a lunatic, and Mitch is pretty much convinced that Curly has plans to murder him in his sleep. Until one night, they end up having to spend alone out in the wilderness where they are rounding up stray cattle. They actually manage to bond during this period of time, and the next morning as they head back to camp, Curly reflects on what Mitch feels like, seems like a simple and authentic and beautiful life. Your life makes sense to you, Mitch exclaims. Well, Curly, with customary disdain in his voice, and yet a surprisingly Christ-like manner, turns to Mitch and says, you city folk, you're always worried about a lot of stuff. You want to know what the secret to life is? One thing. It's just one thing. <sighs> Mitch is absolutely as stumped as Martha. He wants to know what one thing? What's the one thing? You know, work was never meant to be drudgery. In the beginning, work was a gift given by God, meant to be born together in relationship as a creative act with God. The first chapter of Genesis tells the story of God creating the heavens and the earth and everything in it until finally God creates humanity in God's own image for the purpose of caring for creation and in an act of co-creation, multiplying so that the earth would be filled with God reflected through humanity. And it was very good, God said. Everything made sense. It was simple. Our purpose was clear. We were to live in delight and live out of our relationship with our creator. It wasn't until Adam and Eve violated that relationship and had to leave the garden that work became a burden. A burden because they had become distracted. They'd become distracted by the serpent, distracted by the temptation to become like God, and then worried about what they had done. It all began to snowball, and before you know it, they're hiding from God, avoiding the one thing that can make everything all right again. Restored relationship with God. They lost sight of the one thing necessary. Curly dies on the trail, and that leaves Mitch and his two best friends to um, bring the herd home on their own. As they cross this flooded and fast-moving river, Mitch ends up getting uh, drawn downstream as he's trying to rescue a, a drowning calf. And as his life flashes before his eyes, the one thing becomes very sharply focused for him. That one thing for him is his family. He realizes what a gift of life that his family is. And suddenly, the job that he has, all his feelings of inadequacy, his dissatisfaction with life, all of that just kind of evaporates in light of the loving relationships that ground him. 
the loving relationships through which he is filled and through which he shares life. Some of us hate our jobs. I've had jobs that I could barely get out of bed for in the morning, either because of the work itself or because of the environment of the workplace or because of people that I worked with. I mean, not every job is for every person. And some work environments are really hard to take. They can be toxic. And a change may be in order. Maybe a change in job, or maybe you're being called to work within the job that you find yourself, at least for a time, to change the environment or to change the culture or to right some injustice that you recognize in that workplace or to bring encouragement to your colleagues. Or maybe you discover that it's an opportunity to even change yourself. In one job in particular, a job that I really wanted to quit every single day when I woke up, it was a toxic environment. It was very difficult to be in that place. But with the help of prayer and with the help of some really good friends and a couple of wise mentors, I continued to show up for that job for four years and discovered that it was an excellent opportunity for me in relationship with God to change who I was. I was able to grow more spiritually and emotionally in those four years than I had in a long time in some very important ways as I learned how to stand up, as I learned how to speak out, even in an environment where it didn't feel safe to do so or in a circumstance where, at least from a career advancement perspective, it was not very strategic. Some of us like our jobs. I love my current gig. And I still have my Martha days. I have the days where I feel overwhelmed and overburdened. And oftentimes I'll discover, if I'm honest, I realize that I'm having a Martha day because it's been way too long since I had a Mary day. I haven't spent near enough time at the feet of Jesus. My structured prayer time is generally first thing in the morning. As soon as I get out of bed, I like to sit and pray when the house is still quiet before anybody else wakes up. But when I'm feeling overwhelmed, when I'm feeling overburdened, it's easy for me to get distracted even during that prayer time. I find myself interrupting my prayer to check my phone real quick because I think there was an email that I probably need to respond to. And so I look to check my email and then suddenly I see another email that looks really important. I should probably read that right now. And so I do. And then it's asking me about a meeting later in the week, which makes me go check my calendar which makes me want to schedule something. And then I have to put a reminder in my, in my clock so that I don't forget something that's coming up later in the day. And before I know it, if I'm not careful without any prayer at all, it's time to go take a shower. And I have completely missed out on the one thing necessary. The center of this audacious faith claim that we make I've completely missed the abundant life that I'm offered in the resurrection because I have failed to ground myself in relationship with the resurrected one. Y'all, Jesus doesn't mean to set up a dichotomy. Jesus is not setting up a dichotomy between active work or service to Christ and the contemplative life. One is not privileged over the other. 
Rather, Jesus affirms both, provided that their focus and their purpose and their object of devotion remain clear. Tessa Bielecki, our monk friend, she says, Martha is reprimanded not because of, not because uh, that she's doing work, but it's because of her distraction. She's worried and fretful. Tessa Bielecki says, we must be both Martha of the many things and Mary of the one thing necessary, relationship with God. Which makes me wonder, and I do want to tread lightly here because I'm aware that there are circumstances around some people's employment situation which are very painful, which are really hard to take, which are toxic. And I don't want to minimize any of that at all. Still, it makes me wonder, wherever we find ourselves in relationship to our work, I wonder, can we be led to more abundant life when we are grounded in our relationship with the one who is risen? For Adam and Eve, work became drudgery when they turned away from God, when they betrayed their relationship with God. The resurrection draws all people back to God. In Christ's resurrection, our relationship with God is restored. And when we rest at Jesus' feet like Mary, I wonder, might we be able to better discern the work that God has called us to? And maybe to better engage in that work with clear purpose, maybe with more joy, with the more abundant life that we're promised. I mean, maybe we can experience more abundant life, that life that the resurrected one promised that we could have when we work to simultaneously be the Martha of the many things and the Mary of the one thing necessary. Together with God, sitting at the feet of Christ in all our work, maybe we can take life up a notch. Amen.